Howdy, everyone. This episode is brought to you by Fireblocks. Love, love, love this company. You'll be hearing all about them later from me later in the episode. But now, on with the show. All right, everyone. Welcome back to another roundup edition of... uh, on the margin, Jesus Christ, it's early in the morning. <laughs> I'm joined by my uh, debonair <laughs> co-host, Mr. Mark Yusko. What's going on, Mark? Ah, <laughs> oh, thank you for the nice compliment, Michael. And uh, you know, I am I am dressed all in black today. Mm. Not trying to be a crypto bro, but mm. because you know I'm in mourning mm. because you know I got the red pants on, the crimson pants. There's blood in the streets, and it is you know rest in peace, Bitcoin. Bitcoin's dead again. For the four hundred and thirteenth time, and uh, I guess everyone should just just move out of crypto and you know go find new jobs back in uh, investment banking. So yeah, Bitcoin's or McDonald's day. or McDonald's or McDonald's. Uh, as, as, yeah. yeah, yeah, that's always good too. Um, so I do, I do. You know, you know what? Actually, I I know we're talking about the uh, market cycles today and everything, but uh, there's a great website actually where it tracks every single time traditional media has called Bitcoin dead. I don't know if you saw yeah. this. Jim Bianco tweeted this Oh, yeah, this out that's why day. I got the number. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 437 times. Uh, so, yeah. 37, that's it. 437. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, pretty pretty freaking impressive, uh, Bitcoin. You got more than yeah. nine lives. Uh, doing better than cats. Um, all right, guys. A uh, couple... Um, let's say housekeeping things uh, going into the new year. So, um, Mark and I were chatting... Um, we, we want to make sure that the show is great uh, for you guys who are all tuning in. We appreciate your time. Uh, Mark and I really do this show for you. Uh, so we're thinking about making a couple tweaks uh, to the format of the roundup. So you guys let us know which parts of the show you like. Make a comment in the YouTube section, on Apple, however you listen. Tag us on Twitter. Uh, let us know which parts of the show you like. Do you like the charts uh, at the beginning of the show? Do you really like to get into the stories? Any suggestion, uh, we are open to it. And if we end up taking your suggestion, we will give you a shout out. So... Let us know what you think. Uh, but one thing that we are going to be doing is focusing on one lead story uh, of the week and diving much more in depth there. Um, so with that being said, uh, let's get into our story this week that I want to talk to you about, Mark, which is uh, inflation, right? So we had the 7% CPI handle uh, that came out earlier this week. And what I want to get your sense on is how do you think markets are reacting to this? And are we at peak inflation fear uh, is what we'll call it. So that's the story that we're going to be diving into uh, really deeply yep. this week. Now... Let me see if I can share my screen. Got some charts here. Uh, so I thought it'd be good to start off with just um, what we're looking at um, within CPI inflation. Uh, so this is kind of a couple of different ways uh, to break it out, right? So if you're looking at the chart on the left, um, we're looking at overall headline year-over-year inflation um, as well as core inflation. So that the uh, headline inflation is 7%. Uh, core inflation, which is the favorite measure of inflation from the Fed, uh, was at 5.45%, which is a little bit higher than they thought. I thought it was kind of how they break it out in services, goods, food, and energy. Uh, so what you can really see from the chart on the left is that goods have just exploded, right? And that's a huge part of what's driving uh, inflation. On the right, I really like how they, they, it's kind of just a different way of looking at it. Uh, so you've kind of got core and then you've got uh, vehicle-related things uh, and pandemic-affected services. So the kind of the, the the takeaways that I have when I look at this chart is uh, one: uh, goods inflation is is way way up, uh, and that's contributing to the to the large number. We're going to get into why that's happening later. Um, and on the right, um, you know, I, I I like this way of looking at it because one, you're kind of looking. We've all heard about uh, you know that Mannheim uh, you know used vehicles index, which is taking off, and that's really related to I think supply chain issues, the chip shortage, etc. Uh, and then you also see there's a big impact by pandemic-related services, right? So airfare, hotels, uh, that sort of thing. Um, you can also tell energy is a big part of this as well. But um, what are your kind of takeaways when you look at this, Mark? So, I mean, so many things. I mean, the first is the old line about the difference between core and headline, that as long as you don't heat or cool your house, which clearly you're not able to heat your house because of the supply chain, and uh, we'll talk about that later. Uh, if you, as long as you don't heat or cool your house, you know, go to the grocery store, send your kids to college, um, you know, try to buy any sort of new item. Um, you know, there's no inflation. And, but, but now there actually is some in theory, but I actually have a pretty, I don't know what you call it, unique or, or differentiated take on this. I, I railed about this last night on Twitter. I, don't call it inflation. It's not inflation. This is a devaluation of the currency. This is a systematic devaluation, destruction 
of the currency and it is theft of wealth from the masses. So on the right hand chart, oh, I love that because it, it breaks out, you know, all of this increase in inflation, the CPI that people are freaking out about is used cars and oil. Oil prices were artificially depressed right after the, the pandemic by Saudi Arabia. They flooded the market with oil, right? This was absolutely intentional. They sent these tankers, they filled up all the uh, ship channel tanker, uh, uh, big tanks, big oil tanks in Houston ship channel. And oil prices, remember, went negative in April of 2020 for a couple of days, right? You actually had to pay people for, for oil uh, to, to store your oil. So kind of like being a bank depositor in Europe or Japan, uh, negative rates. So uh, then they went out and they bought big chunks of cruise lines and oil companies. And then magically they cut. And now we've had this massive increase in, in the price of oil, uh, more than, than trebling. Um, and it's because, remember, they listed right before that whole event, right before the pandemic, right before all this stuff, they listed the largest company in the world, Saudi Aramco. So I, I think the oil price manipulation is real. I think it it is transitory. I think it goes away. Uh, we're not going to have $200 oil next year. We're just not. Um, but that's, that's a big part of it. And the used car thing is all related to this chip shortage. Right. Uh, you see, there, there is no, there's no red <laughs> to the left of mm -hmm. the pandemic, and right. there won't be any red going forward because eventually the car market will equilibrate and you know, we'll, we'll get back to normal. But uh, I, I'm not freaking out about this. The world is freaking out about this, right? Everybody's talking about the end of the bond bull market and interest rates are going up. No, they're not. They can't. Mm. <laughs> they can't. You can't finance the government levels of debt around the world at higher interest rates. It's not possible, right? You can tax the billionaires' wealth. Forget their income. Forget taking a piece of Elon Musk's income or gains. You can take all of his wealth and all of Gates and all of everybody else. You can't cover the deficit. Forget the debt. You can't even cover the deficit. So this idea that we're somehow going to go to 4 or 5% interest rates and finance trillions and trillions of dollars of government debt is, is just folly. So, yeah. I think, and, and, you know, to build on your point there, I think it's really important to try to figure out which percent of these uh, or which parts of the CPI inflation are sticky, uh, so to speak. So where can we kind of uh, expect inflation to um, to moderate to, right, in the coming years? Uh, and then what will rates do in that environment? So like when I, when I you know, my takeaway when I kind of look at this chart of the right, it's like, okay, the vehicle-related inflation, that's most likely going to go away. Um, other core is probably going to stay right around where it was. Um, Energy is kind of interesting uh, because you are absolutely right. I don't expect $200 oil uh, in the future, but I certainly don't expect it to return to um, probably where it was uh, before the pandemic. Uh, maybe we get $80, or I mean, we're already at $80 oil. Maybe we go up to 100 or something like that. But I think that's, I mean, the big driver of energy prices, I think, in my opinion, is this kind of ESG narrative, right? And kind of systemic underinvestment in that, um, in that sector in general. You know, the other thing that's pretty interesting, too, is uh, just the owner's equivalent rent part of CPI. Because one thing that feels pretty sticky to me, but I'd love to get your opinion, is just the price of homes, right? Like we've talked a ton on the show in the past about the skyrocketing price of homes, or, you know, US residential housing. And that's a, a core component of CPI that I think is going to be difficult to get back down. Uh, and actually, we've got this is a pretty cool chart. I'd love to get your thoughts there. But this is um, for folks who are watching on the YouTube, uh, you can actually see a heat map um, of different services within CPI. Uh, so yeah, that energy is looking extremely red there. But uh, yeah, I'd love to get your thoughts on kind of energy uh, specifically and also uh, housing as a component of CPI. Yeah, look, I mean, the whole thing about energy is energy prices uh, just reflect core supply and demand. Mm -hmm. And there is, despite all the talking, you know, Kyle Bass was on TV yesterday saying that you know oil prices are going to double and he sees $200 oil because there's been a systematic underinvestment in in productive capability uh, since the, the pandemic. And yeah, kind of. Mm. Um, in the U.S., a whole bunch of producers went under because they were over leveraged. They should have gone under, right? One of the things that I, I rail against is this whole idea of participation trophy world in which we live, where no one no one's allowed to fail. No person's allowed to fail. No company's allowed to fail. 
than all these crappy oil companies that bought mediocre land at too high prices, like Aubrey McClendon's companies, et cetera, God rest his soul. And not a bad person, but he did a bunch of stupid stuff. Actually cost me a lot of money, so I even hate him more. <laughs> but, um, you know, that, and that was, that's on me. I actually believed that he could do what he said he was going to do, which he couldn't. But uh, the challenge is that that's the U.S. Saudi Arabia still has literally more oil than God, and they can at any time increase the supply and crash the market. They did it right after the pandemic. Uh, they can do it again. They've chosen, which I think is intelligent, to, to have some discipline. But the problem really for oil is that uh, the sanctions are starting to wear off. Uh, you're seeing Iran production start to rise again. Even in Venezuela, which they've totally decimated their productive capacity through neglect, uh, there's some chance that that could rise again. And, and really, this whole period over the last four or five years where we've had close to balance in the oil market is because we systematically, when I say we, meaning Saudi and, and Russia and the U.S., basically clamp down on these big potential producers, Iran and Venezuela. Because Venezuela has more oil uh, just about than anybody. I think even more, maybe, I might have this right, I think they actually have more than Saudi or right there with Saudi. So they just can't get to it because, you know, their dictators took all the money for themselves and didn't invest in, in uh, R&D. Um, so that's, that's a long-winded way of saying I think oil prices are kind of where they're going to be. Hmm. I think they're not going to skyrocket. I don't think demand is going to surge uh, one of the, the dirty little secrets that no one talks about is that U.S. oil production this year is actually up. They're like, no, 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 we had, we had this collapse really? and all this. You know, no, no one could get access to debt. Fine, but oil production in the United States is up. And that says that supply and demand is not back to where it was. Air travel is not back to where it was. And now they're talking about lockdowns again. Um, automobile travel is decent, but still not uh, where it was pre-pandemic. So I think we're closer to a balanced market here than people think. Um, and look, we've been long oil since fourth quarter of uh, 2020. We have tonned it in our long short fund in oil, best performing sector by a lot. Uh, our oil manager is up 20% this month. <laughs> And that's been my big thing that Fang, Diamondback Energy, is better than Fang, Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, Google. That was true last year. It's true this year. It will be true the rest of the year. <clears throat> but it's the winners. It's not, I don't, I don't bank on oil prices going up. It's just that Diamondback is gushing cash because they um, can produce for far less than $80 a barrel. And, and they're going to make a lot of money because their competitors went out of business and they were able to buy stuff on the cheap. Mm. So... Uh, that was the first part. And then, see, I already forgot. What was the second part? Uh, oil. Uh, owner's equivalent rent. Oh, owner's equivalent rent. Look, so, again, go back to that chart on owner's equivalent rent. So, yes, you know, housing prices collapsed um, and owner's equivalent rent collapsed uh, during the, the pandemic. And now they're almost back to, to where they were. And, again, this is my point. Is I live in, you know, Chapel Hill, North Carolina. And... You know, my daughter moved here uh, 18 months ago and they've been trying to buy a house and housing prices are just crazy, right? 18, 20%, you know, house goes on the market. It's got 18 offers. It sells for, you know, 50% above, not 50, 25% above asking price, 50 grand more than, than, you know, in many cases, hundred grand more. I mean, it's, it's, it's nuts. It's lunacy. And it's just a supply demand problem. There's just too many people moving to North Carolina because we got Apple and Google and, and Amazon uh, building stuff here, and then you get the universities and the medical systems. So, but that's not that the houses got better. Houses don't appreciate. Mm. They actually wear out, they depreciate. What goes up is the value in dollars, and dollars got devalued by 40%. Mm. And so that was a one-time event, it isn't coming back. And part of the reason I'm not as bullish on the markets or the short term on even crypto is I don't think the central banks have a bazooka shell left. Mm. I don't think they can, you know, flood the economy with trillions of dollars 
of new money again. And so I think owner's equivalent rent is going to go flatline. I think housing prices are going to roll over. I don't think they're going to stop going up because there's still uh, too many people. Well, I, should, I take that back. Net, net, they might go flat mm. because they're going to fall in California, New York, Michigan, Ohio, and they're going to surge, keep surging in North Carolina, Florida, Texas, because there is still a tax arbitrage uh, flight that's happening in human beings. Yeah. Um, yeah, actually, there was a our interview that we did last week, I guess, with uh, Danielle. Um, she so she talked about this a little bit as well. We actually we actually did look at a chart of and it looks like housing prices are starting to roll over as well. And again, if you go back to the CPI heat map here uh, in general, you can see that that shelter is not really, um, you know, it, just in terms of velocity and price change, it's not really what's driving uh, a lot of this right. headline number uh, in general. And, you know, I, I guess for me, when I'm looking at this, so like vehicles and parts, that is a chip shortage. Uh, you know, that is a chip shortage issue that looks like it's going to come down. Mark, I'm inclined to agree with you on the energy front. I, I will caveat that by saying I'm not an expert uh, whatsoever, but it's just really hard for me to imagine, you know, $200 oil like anytime uh, in the near future. Um, I, I want to dig into a little bit uh, <clears throat> this idea of like goods inflation um, in general um, and why it's so interesting and important. You know, I, I've been li- I, and I would direct uh, listeners if you're, you're interested in hearing more about this. Uh, there was a great interview that uh, my colleague Jack Farley did with uh, Joseph Wang. He's known as Fed Guy on Twitter. Uh, he was a senior trader at the Federal Reserve for a little while. Uh, and he's really changing my mind uh, about who to look at in terms of like monetary and fiscal canons and who's really responsible for inflation. And I'm starting to think a lot of attention is getting paid to the Fed, but really the Treasury. Um, is what we should be paying more attention to. Um, and so it, on the left here, the, the two charts that you're looking at is you're looking at goods prices since the start of the pandemic um, and uh, then spending, uh, you know, versus pre-COVID, right? So you can see that, you know, post-COVID, you know, our goods spending, at least in the U.S., is like really, really jumped uh, to a pretty insane level. Um, and when you compare that to other countries, it's especially in the U.S. Uh, that we have a lot of demand for good. Um, and on the right, you can see a chart of CPI uh, versus retail sales. And the connection that I would make for folks is that we gave money to people. Uh, and in, in a weird way, we've actually had two different policies of giving money to people in the past. We're giving money to two different contingencies. QE is essentially giving money to the financial system and kind of to wealthy people. Right, uh, you know, you're you're doing that asset swap. Uh, you're you're flooding the banking system with reserves. Those reserves are finding their way into financial assets, right? Which kind of benefits the wealthy. And when you give money to, sorry, this isn't going to sound super PC, but if you give money to wealthy people, they will they will save because they don't have day to day spending needs or, or whatever. <laughs> That's completely PC. Yeah, yeah. That 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 is what rich people do. Their 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 marginal con, marginal propensity to consume right. is very low. But if, they invest in more stuff, they buy more stuff, they they generate more passive income, they get wealthier. Look, this is the playbook, right? This this is the plan. And sorry, keep going. I was just gonna say, if you give money to poor people, they spend it. So so like that's why I'm trying to draw the connection between this chart here, this skyrocketing demand for in retail sales, in the price of consumer goods, and then we'll go back to this chart here. Like, look at this. Look at this blue part of the graph, this light blue part of the graph. It is absolutely exploding. So sorry, that was just yeah. the, the end of my point. Well, but it, it's also a base effect. And and this is where, you know, math is hard. Mm. You know, if you ask somebody, if you're down 50%, how much do you have to be up to good even? Oh, 50%. Like, no, 100%. And so, you know, you see the spike down. And yes, all the, the subsequent recordings are going to look so great. But then you see... We have a roughly equivalent amount of time to get back to the equidistant point over the trend line, but then it starts to flatline again. Mm. And the marginal change in retail sales is declining because we stopped giving people free money. Shocking. If you give, if you give people money and worse, we gave people money and locked them in their house so they couldn't spend on movie tickets, they couldn't spend on cruises or air travel. What could they do? They could go to Amazon and buy shit and have it sent to their house. Because remember, this was not a lockdown for truck drivers, for gas station attendants, for convenience store owners, for grocery store workers, for shippers. 
for people who really hold the fabric of society together, this was not a lot. They didn't get to take time off. They had to work every freaking day on the quote unquote front lines. And it it makes me angry when I think about privilege, because if you're listening to this podcast, you are privileged. And I don't mean that in a negative sense. We're lucky, right? We won the lottery by being born in this country in a time of, you know, basic safety and, and, and world peace, you know, lowest number of wars, active wars in, in history, I think. So we are just totally privileged. And for people to then be concerned that, oh, well, I, you know, I, I can't get the exact car I want because, you know, we shut down fab production in Southeast Asia because we were worried about, you know, a virus. We've had viruses, again, for hundreds, thousands of years. And the human society goes on because it knows how to deal with viruses. Lockdowns were never the right answer. They have just, it's idiocy. There's a great book. I think I've talked about this before. There's a great book that this guy wrote talking about that this was actually part of China's plan. And I don't want to go down that 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 rabbit hole. But um, you know, it's just crazy stuff going on. And I think ultimately we're going to come back to normal, maybe, hmm. as long as the people who are prop, uh, perpetuating this plan don't get more people to believe that these policies are a good idea. Because it wasn't the virus that caused the problem. It was the policy reactions that caused the problem. Yeah. that The policy reactions caused the supply chain problems. The policy reactions caused the spike in goods purchases the policy reactions are the problem not the other stuff yeah well here's i mean this is a chart uh, i think that we've shown in the past this comes to us from lynn alden uh but it's just another kind of way of looking at this in general um so you're looking at loan growth government deficit and just broad money growth and you know i think yeah, i mean there's there's obviously a, there's a huge link here actually i think in between you know people look when they're looking at inflation and money supply growth they look a lot at uh, what commercial banks are doing and whether or not they're lending money into the economy uh, what they often don't look at is just uh, government spending and government deficits in general. So you can see a huge correlation here between government deficit and, um, you know, broad money growth, uh, which I think is pretty interesting. Well, I, I love this chart. And, you know, Lynn is fantastic. And, and that chart is 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 brilliant in, in what it says is governments, right, by their nature, as they mature, will tend toward overspending. Mm-hmm. In the history of empires, every single empire in history has fallen for the same reason. Mm. Profligate spending, incurring debt, not being able to service the debt, and a collapse of their currency and therefore of their power and therefore they become less meaningful. You know, the British Empire lasted for about 70 plus years and then it went away. And it's not that London disappeared. It's not that the UK fell into the ocean. It's just not the center of the universe anymore. And they're not the most powerful nation on earth. And, and America has been for the last 80 odd years, uh, 75 years, 76 years, that superpower. And now we have spent too much. We've incurred too much debt. We are restricting our productive capacity. We're not investing in things like education. And, and now we're crippling a whole generation of kids through again, crazy policies. And, you know, are we going to be surprised when we fade in importance and power and might relative to countries that are doing the opposite? Uh, we shouldn't be surprised. Yeah, I completely agree. With, I mean, you know me, I'm a huge history nerd for this kind of stuff. It's like, I, I think it's really interesting to look at, uh, I'll note two things just about failure of empires, uh, all, all that kind of stuff. Uh, you know, empires, they face similar challenges, um, actually, d- despite you know, when they end up getting created, you have, you have the same kind of basic needs, right? You need to grow, you need to find some sort of growth and revenue engine, and then you need to essentially secure your supply lines and people, right? So like the Roman Empire, one of their largest challenges was just, you know, after they would assimilate all these cultures, they had to do supply lines to basically feed their entire empire in general. Um, yeah. And, you know, uh, their their revenue engine faltered because what they essentially relied on after a period of time was, ooh, well, actually, if we find out that when we expand our empire, we can go and ransack their cities and take their, uh, you know, take a lot of their existing wealth, and then we can tax them, and that that was really their revenue generating system. 
that started to falter and then they started to issue more currency that led to more bureaucracy there's like a billion different reasons why that empire there's there's like five really not a billion it's like five reasons uh that people cite why that empire fell uh i i would shoot i'm gonna blank on this guy's name there's like one guy who's written a really definitive uh history of this i'll link it in the show notes but um just just to sum up everything, and now I almost want to present, because, Mark, I, I don't know if you've sensed this, but uh, there, there's a lot of kind of bearish sentiment out there right now. And I want to almost sum up the bear case uh, of inflation, and then I, I kind of want to present another side to it. So the bear case yeah. that I'm kind of getting right now is, hey, we've been in this period of extraordinary uh, monetary accommodation for the past, let's say, year and a half, ever since COVID. Yep. Really, you know, we've had the Fed come in and say, we've got this unlimited bazooka. They've poured liquidity into markets, but now we might be at an end and actually entering a period of tightening, right? So we've all uh, seen the news reports. We had a 7% uh, CPI print this last month. Now we've got the short end of the curve uh, in the bond market pricing in four separate rate hikes next year. We've also got a situation where you know, the Fed has come out and said, ah, we're, we're probably nearing full employment, right? So if you look at the Fed's dual mandate, they're looking at price stability and they're looking at maximum employment in the U.S. Okay, uh, we're now looking at a situation where inflation seems to be coming back and it's coming in hot. In, uh, employment is full. There's not much cloud cover anymore for them to be continue easing, right? So then y- you would expect them to start tightening. If they start tightening, liquidity comes out of markets. Maybe we see a retracement, right? And I think in equity markets, it's been rocky uh, for the last month or two as that uh, di- information has kind of been digested. Crypto, we've seen a pretty big pullback. And a lot of people are basically saying, ooh, for the next year, the Fed is going to have to fight inflation. They're going to have to raise rates. This is going to be bad for asset prices. That's yep. basically my summary of the bear case. Anything that you would, would add to that? Nope. I, it's a perfect summary. It's exactly the the bear case is... Uh, you know, liquidity is abundant. Liquidity is good for markets. Withdrawal of liquidity is bad for markets. And when you start from super, super high valuations, it could be really bad for markets. Mm. So let's start digging into, are there any holes in that theory? Or is that the appropriate long-term framework uh, to be looking at? Um, so what I want to show here is I think you're starting to see inflationary pressures start to dissipate. Slightly, right? And I don't think this is novel here, but th- these are the two things that I kind of like to pay attention to. So you're looking at um, ISM prices paid uh, versus inflation, right? So ISM uh, manufacturing prices are actually dipping, right? And, and we kind of know this, right? We, we're already at uh, kind of within the manufacturing sector and supply chains in general. We've kind of reached peak pressure in the US and we're actually starting to see pressures dissipate uh, for the last couple months. Um, I, I wanted to show this in conjunction with this chart on the right, which is real average hourly earnings index. This was pretty startling to me. Uh, Shout out to The Daily Shot for producing some really excellent charts. But one thing that had really kind of changed my mind about the severity of inflation in the US was this startling wage growth that we started to see in like blue collar, low income type jobs really, really spiked. But we're kind of back. And I know this is real average hourly earnings. So there's a caveat there. But uh, we're kind of already back down to that pre-COVID level that we were at. So taken in conjunction to me, these two charts kind of say we might already be at peak inflation pressure and we're actually starting to see signs of dissipation. Uh, I have thoughts on this, but I, I don't know what your takes are when you're looking at these two charts. 100%. I think it's, it's, it's uh, you're, you're too humble. Uh, this is a, a great point. Uh, it's one that most people aren't paying attention to. Uh, it's the, the edge of listening to on the margin mm-hmm. is, you know, talking about stuff that, that most people aren't talking about. Um, inflation is a trailing indicator, mm-hmm. right? It's telling us what happened past tense over the past year. Yes. In the past year, oil prices recovered. Yes, they did. And, you know, used car sales went up a lot. Okay. But now looking forward, all those pressures are abating. And and the, you know, the the earnings stuff, you know, the wages and Jamie Dimon was on TV saying, oh, you know, we're going to have to deal with rising wages. No, no. What we did is we we incented people not to work. Okay? And, and then there was a whole course of people saying, oh, universal basic income and raise the minimum wage. The price fixing has never been a good idea. There's no example of price fixing in history. 
whether it's price fixing of interest rates, price fixing of wages, price fixing of prices of goods and services, mm -hmm. cabals, you know, monopolies, price fixing is bad. And minimum wages are a form of price fixing. There will always be somebody, okay, unless you stop immigration, and, and which we did kind of, um, had the lowest number of immigrants, net immigrants, I think, in, in a long time, maybe 100 plus years. And so, yeah, policies, again, bad policies making problems worse. But if, if you're willing to pay someone $7.50 to do a job and someone else says, I'll do it for seven. Well, why? Why would you do that? Well, because I need the job. And maybe I made a different life choice. Maybe my lifestyle is different than, than yours. Um, and so I, I think there's all of this stuff that, that people focus on, like, oh, we, you know, again, the privilege should do this for the masses. Well, how about starting with stopping this nonsense, which is theft from the masses in the form of inflation? The idea that we've used propaganda for the last 108 years to convince people that inflation is good for them. Like there was even an article going around Twitter the other day that you know, someone wrote, actually somebody wrote this, or maybe a bot wrote it because no human would actually write this, that inflation was good for the average person. There's zero chance that that's true. The average person doesn't own stocks. They don't own their house. They rent. They buy food. They buy medicine. If those prices are rising and their incomes are not, that is bad. That is, that is evil. That is a theft of their wealth to the masses that own all the, the goods and services. Dictator Playbook 101. Mm. So I kind of get, I don't know what I actually do, get angry at this whole nonsense about like, like the full employment mandate. Yeah, if you take anyone who turns uh, 65 and you say they are retired, that's what they do. They say they're retired. Well, that, that's bogus. Have you been to a Walmart? Right? Like, there are plenty of people over 65 working because they have to pay the bills because the cost of the things that they buy are going up and Medicare and Medicaid don't cover enough. And Social Security clearly doesn't cover the cost of living. So, and fixed income and those people, right, who saved their whole life and who had an expectation that if they put their money in savings, they could make a decent return above inflation, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight percent historically. Now they get taxed. They're getting zero on those CDs and or maybe one percent. And inflation is stealing all their their little wealth they have. They don't actually have any wealth. They have in you know they have fixed income. And so it's a really, really bad situation. And so you know the Fed's patting themselves on the back. Oh, we're so good. You know, we're 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 full in, we're full, we're at full employment. You didn't do anything. You didn't create any jobs. All you did is you stopped counting people as employed when they left the workforce. So our workforce participation rate is declining. Our productivity is declining. And all of those things, uh, and Bill Gates is listening to me. He's trying to take over my computer. Um, apologies. So uh, look, I, I know I'm on a rant here and I should stop, but it's, it's insanity that people think the Fed is doing a good job. The Fed should be abolished, right? And if you don't follow Rudy Haverstein, you should. And he's been on this kick for eight years. The Fed, do you? Do, you know, I got to Do you know Rudy, evil. Mark, by any chance? I've talked to him, but I don't know him. I I, I actually don't know who it is. I've talked to him, um, and we've talked about getting together secretly, like you know, if I promise not to tell anyone who he is. Um, I wish I did. I, I think he's cool. I send Rudy uh, a DM every two months and ask if he'll come on the show. I'm like, hey, man, just checking in. Um, any interest in coming on the show? He's always like really polite, really nice guy. He's like, uh, nope, nope, yep. but thanks for checking in. Yep. I'm always like, okay, yep. I'll talk to you again in two months. <laughs> there, are, there are two mystery men, because I, th I think they're men, mm. and they could be women, but two, two mystery people, uh, Rudy's one, and the other guy was this guy, Macro Hedge. And you know, he was super hot on Twitter and everybody wanted to know who it was. And, and again, I've, I've talked to him. He, he kind of disappeared now. I'm pretty sure he's Australian from the accent. Could be, you know, British, but, but I'm pretty sure he's Australian. And I mean, we used to have, and I hate to admit this because people are going to think this is weird, but we would talk like for hours, mm. hours over Twitter or 
I think we talked a couple times using WhatsApp and, and other you know encoded things because he's really big on on personal security. And you know there are lots of people who thought they knew who it was, but but the guy was was mad genius about a lot of stuff. He had a really weird you know style. Some people didn't like swore a lot and all that kind of stuff. But those are the two that I, I really would like to know who they are. And I'd love to hang out with Rudy because I, I love the guy. Me too. He's a great guy. Um... Just to bring it back to inflation. Or gal. Yeah. If it's a gal. Yeah. Uh, com- completely agree. Um, but, you know, just just to, to bring it back to inflation here in general. So I, th- I think, and you know, I've started to hear rumblings of this as well. And I think the expectation is that <clears throat> at least the rate of change in inflation, right, is, is going to, is, is kind of already peaking. If it's not, you know, if we haven't reached peak uh, headline CPI in, in December of last year, maybe it'll be January or early Q1 of this year. And, you know, my kind of thought on, on how to attribute, um, interpret markets is that, I think markets, they're looking out into the future, but they kind of just extrapolate the most recent trend, right? So that whole narrative yes. that I kind of went, yes. right? They, they just, that whole narrative exactly. that I just went into, uh, which is like, hey, they're looking into the future. They're seeing inflation on the, they were seeing inflation on the horizon. They were seeing a tight labor market. They weren't seeing a whole lot of room for the Fed to maneuver. You know, I'm kind of trying to put myself in the shoes of three months from now, right? I'm not a short term, I'm not trading around this, right? So disclaimer there, but, uh, you know, I'm trying to put myself in the, in the shoes of, three months from now. And I can see a situation where it's like, ooh, uh, you know, that inflation that we were all so worried about? Well, it was that Fed turned out was actually right. Uh, it was looking pretty transitory. So not back down to where it was, but hey, it's it's on its way down from the 7% handle that we had in December. Things are actually going to be kind of okay. Oh, and by the way, that spike in uh, earnings, right? Uh, everyone is so worried about wage growth in the US as a driver of inflation. Yeah. That looks actually, that's starting to look pretty normal as well. You know what? Actually, I think the Fed does have, you know, between us, they've got some more room to maneuver, basically. Uh, oh, they've got lots of room. And, and again, they're, they, they're, they're powerless. They're in a box. Mm-hmm. They can't raise rates. They're not going to raise rates. They're going to talk about it. They're going to jawbone about it, but they're not going to do it. Mm-hmm. And even if they were to raise the Fed funds rate, remember, you and I don't borrow at Fed funds. The only people that borrow at Fed funds are banks. Mm-hmm. And banks' balance sheets are better than they were. They're not at crisis levels, so they actually could afford to actually pay you know, 75 or 100 basis points to borrow money from the Fed to invest in, in treasuries at 3%. They'd still make the same spread, zero versus two, one versus three. So, um, but anyway, that, that's a longer story, but the, um, so keep going. Yeah. So here's these two charts. I want to show these in conjunction with one another. I think they're pretty interesting. So this is what we're looking at is a survey here of businesses reporting uh, a rise or fall in price of their products. Uh, and then uh, on the right, we're looking at what are the factors that are responsible for driving those rising or falling prices in their products. Obviously, on the left, you can see a big old spike uh, in rise in prices, right? So, you know, usually there's kind of a, uh, you know, we're, we're range bound between something like 5 and, and 20% or something like that. And, and now it's like 40% of businesses are reporting a rise in their prices. Okay. Well, sure. you know, that chart's probably going to normalize somewhat, right? You, you kind of look at that and maybe your first reaction is to say, wow, it's going to keep going, but I, I'm not really sure. Uh, and the reason why is if you look at what's driving that rise in prices. So for those of you who aren't following along on the video, um, I'll, I'll just lead, read the top five or so categories. So number one uh, at 36% is global supply chain disruption. Number two is rising commodity prices. Number three is inability to meet demand due to labor skills and shortages. Uh, number four is rising energy costs. Number five is the COVID-19 response. Okay, so let's break those down, right? Because the global supply chain disruption, to me, that's not something that's permanent. Yes, I think you could make the argument that we're going to be reorganizing our supply chains. Uh, Maybe we're not going to be as dependent on uh, China or super low-cost labor regions uh, to deliver goods to the U.S. anymore. But by and large, I think we are working through the global supply chain issues. Rising commodity prices, I don't know, maybe you're a huge commodity bull. I I do think that, uh, you know, certainly the valuation of commodities to equities or something like that is at a a pretty low point, uh, you know, when you Mm -hmm. look. So maybe that's something that sticks around. Inability to meet demand due to labor skills shortage. I do not think that that's something that's permanent. Uh, Frankly, I agree with you, Mark. I, I, I think that what happened there is we we basically had a government that told people to stay home uh, and we gave them money uh, and you know surprise surprise that led to a labor shortage i see that alleviating rising energy costs again i don't think i don't see $200 oil i probably don't see it going back to where it was but I, i'm not sure that's going to continue to be a factor and then the covid-19 response i'm with you i think we're over the hump and i think that's going to go away so i think three out of those the five drivers there are actually pretty temporary when you take a long term view and the more important thing is that you just gotta you just gotta anticipate what the change is like? How are those 
factor is going yeah. to start yep. to change because people will extrapolate the trend. So it's not like, oh, global supply chain disruption needs to go away. What needs to happen for asset prices is the perception or the the perception of chains needs to start, right? Those those disruptions need yeah. to start dissipating and then people will extrapolate that trend. So No, Michael, you're, you're so right. And, and look, it's that, it's that first change in the second or third order effect. And it's like the old quote about emerging markets, right? You make the most money investing in emerging markets when things go from truly awful to merely bad. <laughs> yeah. And the same thing is true here. You don't make money when it goes from bad to good. You make money when it goes from truly awful, like horrible, like everyone wants out to just bad. Mm. And so same thing here. We're going from quote unquote truly awful that, oh my God, inflation is going to be like the 70s. No, it's not. This is nothing like the 70s. Mm. Not, not one bit like the 70s. It's like the 40s. Is when the greatest generation started to age, and uh, this is the boomers, you know, myself included, starting to age, and this is not going to be a '70s boom in inflation where people were aging into this non-productive period. Uh, it came back from the war, and everybody had babies, and suddenly you had all these 25-year-olds. 25-year-olds are not very productive. They're perfectly nice people but they're not productive because they don't know very much. They are not very experienced. And it takes a good 20 years to become productive members of, of economies. So 45 to 65 year olds are super productive. That's when you have massive productivity. If you look around the world, the highest inflation is where you have lots of 25 year olds. And that's what happened in the 70s. Mm. That is not what's happening now. We do not have, now, you could argue that the Gen X and Gen Z, uh, Gen X, Gen Y, Gen Z, maybe there are a lot of 25 year olds. Okay, so I'll, I'll, I, I would think about that, but I think the bigger problem is the aging demographic of the boomers and its impact on uh, deflation as opposed to inflation. This episode is brought to you by Fireblocks. I talk to a lot of fast-growing crypto-native funds, crypto banks, exchanges, and the like, and they all tell me they have the same two problems. One, their treasury management setup sucks. They've got analysts wasting time and money on manual transactions. Two, they are not happy with their current security setup. They're sharing passwords, they're sending test transactions, and they're worried that their funds might be at risk. Fireblocks is a platform that solves all of that for you. They're a one-stop shop portal, which automatically plugs into exchanges, trading venues, etc. They source deep liquidity and solve everything from day-to-day -day crypto transactions all the way down to complex DeFi strategy. And the best thing about Fireblocks is that they offer scalable solutions with industry-leading technology. Doesn't matter if you're a two-person crypto fund or a 2,000-person crypto exchange, these guys have you covered. And the last thing that I'll say about this company is that I have known them for years. They are a high-integrity team. They ship product like no other. I would trust them with my own funds. So click the link at the bottom of this page and tell them that I sent you. Very, very important that you click the link at the bottom here. Otherwise, they're not going to know that I sent you. And then how am I going to get credit? So help a brother out. Click the link at the bottom of this episode. Tell them I sent you. Yeah, the population growth. Uh, there's, there's a great... Uh, um, this guy named Alfonso uh, Pecatiello, he's been on BlockWorks a couple of times now. He wrote a great post on Endgame uh, of monetary policy. He focuses a lot on, I mean, he talks a lot about cyclical versus real structural growth. So cyclical being credit-driven growth, structural growth just being real organic, sustainable growth outside of just credit creation. Uh, and he looks at, um, you know, I know you talk a lot about this, Mark, and I completely agree with you. It's just the impact of demographics. Um, and yeah. you can see there's a, there's a deceleration in global population growth that's been happening uh, for a long, long time. Uh, I, I do want to zoom in on this. This thing is pretty interesting uh, that, I, again, I saw Jim, Jim Bianco tweeted this out. Um, and, you know, I had never thought about this, but it's, it's quite interesting. So people talk a lot about the long end of the curve, right? What the 10-year and the 30-year uh, bond are doing. There's been a lot of movement in the short end of the curve, right? So we're looking at, on the left, we're looking at a chart of uh, the two-year um, treasury, which has gone up and up and up, uh, right? Which is, is really climbing. That's what's pricing in kind of the short-term rate hikes uh on the right we've got a chart from double line and this is pretty this comes to us from jeff uh, jeff gunlock's firm and uh what we're showing here uh and credit to jim bianco for tweeting this out uh is the correlation in between the two-year bond yield and 
the Fed funds rate. You can see that they tend to move in lockstep with one another. So a couple couple of different takeaways for me is that uh, on the right, it looks like um, you know, you've know you got the, the two-year kind of taking off. So Mark, to, to borrow your phrase, uh, where the, the neck goes, the, the head goes, the body will follow. Um, uh, so, but but uh, the, the more interesting takeaway, I think for me too, is that you've got to look at the spread in between what the short end of the curve is doing, the two-year, and the like the 10-year is doing. Because you what you do not want is a situation where there's an inverted yield curve, which what that tends to presage uh, recessions, Always. right? Always. So yeah. the, the, the Fed has a lot of impact on the short end of the curve, right? So the short end of the curve, the two-year bond, has responded a lot uh, to this the Fed posturing, right? And saying, we're going to taper, we're going to accelerate tapering, we're going to do these rate hikes, uh, you know, in 2022. So the short end of the curve has moved up a lot. The long end of the curve, so the 10-year or 30-year, has barely responded. So you know, when you look at the spread in between the two-year and the 10-year, that is kind of a measure of how much leeway the Fed has to maneuver. Because what they don't want to do is push the short end of the curve above the long end of the curve, cause right. an inversion, and then they can be like, then, then everyone will point to the Fed and say, hey, you guys flipped the yield curve, and then they would be responsible for the recession. So to me, the spread is it's a pretty interesting gauge of how much room the Fed really has. Yeah, twos tens is is a really important point. And the, the the chart on the right, you know, it's clear from the chart, mm -hmm. right, that the blue line, the actual two year, leads the Fed. And everybody says, oh, the Fed's just reacting to the market. Nope, that's a simplistic interpretation mm -hmm. of the chart. If you actually think about it for a second, you know, and step back, how does the Fed work? They start talking about something, then they talk louder, then they eventually do it. So yes, as soon as they start talking because we live in an electronic world, a digital world where everything is on your desk the moment it's spoke. Like Leo Brenner could say something right now and it'll show up on my phone instantaneously. It used to take days for you know, a reporter to write a story, get in the Wall Street Journal. I'd have to pick up the journal and actually read it. Now everything's instantaneous. So to me, this is just saying, yes, in the past few years, uh, the Fed starts talking and the market reacts faster and then the Fed eventually does it. So this doesn't say to me, that the Fed is is not useful because we could just replace it with the two-year. The Fed is still controlling the two-year. They're just doing it verbally as opposed to changing, right? They put out their dot plot and all this stuff. What this does say to me is, again, price fixing is bad. When you have a group that's responsible for fixing the price of money, of interest, it's not a good system. And you tend toward these boom-bust cycles. If if we eradicated the Fed, right, you know, blew up the Fed and said, you know, we're going to let the market. So I agree. Let the market replace the Fed. But I, I think this chart is a little bit of a red herring. It's a great marketing mm -hmm. chart. And, and Jeffrey is a genius of marketing. Genius. It's just, an, it's just one more data point, right? It's one more data point, I think. Um, and, you know, the, the last this, – this actually surprised me. Um, <clears throat> so this – we're, we're, so I guess the question that I eventually want to get to is how do asset prices react, right? So the summary of everything that we've said so far is, okay, there is a short-term bearish case for, uh, let's call it QT or quantitative tightening, lack of monetary accommodation, whatever you want to call it. Everyone is really concerned about when the Fed starts tapering off or potentially tightening up its balance sheet. So I think it's at like $9 trillion. And then maybe even more concerningly, what happens when we finally get rate hikes, right? Which we, would seem like a distant memory to us all now. This was interesting because we're, what we're looking at here is basically when the Fed starts to enter a period of monetary tightening, What? how does the S&P respond after the date of the first rate hike? So we're looking at the next three months, the next six months, and the next 12 months of S&P returns post first rate hike. This goes all the way back to 1983. And what you can see here is that there's some turbulence for the first three months, right? You know, half the time it's red, half the time it's green. Next six months, you're seeing a lot more green numbers in there. The next 12 months, every single time post first rate hike, the S&P ends up in the green. So to me, this was just a pretty interesting data point. Obviously, past performance is not predictive of future results. But for me, there's a lot of 
fear, right, about what is going to happen when the Fed starts hiking rates. But this particular data point actually doesn't support the idea that that would translate negatively to asset prices, at least not in equity markets. So I don't know. What's your interpretation here, Mark? Okay, I think it's, a, it's, a, it's a, again, brilliant, brilliant poll. And I think the, the analysis has to go one step deeper mm. because this is 100% correct. And if you think about it, just logically for a second, when would the Fed raise interest rates? When things were getting better or getting worse? Mm. Historically, ah, absolutely, yeah. it would be you raise when things are getting better. Right? Mm. That, that makes perfect sense. And that's why I always say, you know, low interest rates are not a sign of economic strength. They're a sign of economic weakness. You look around the world, the places that have the highest GDP growth have higher rates, not lower rates, because you can tighten liquidity when things are doing well. So this is completely logical pre-QE. Mm -hmm. Post-QE, right? Because yep. what we don't have here is that the, the, it's a chart crime and, and you didn't make the chart. But the person who made this is a total chart crime because it only looks post-inflation of the 70s. It looks at the boomer bull market from the 80s, from the exact bottom in the 80s, where we had the greatest bull market in history from 1983 till 2000. What it doesn't show, right, is yes, the Fed tried to prick the bubble in 1999. And it says, oh, in 12 months, you know, the market was still up. Oh, yeah. Extend that six more months into the first part of 2001 when it went down 30 percent. And then another six months when it was that. That's when Amazon went down 90 percent. And so they tried to raise rates in 15 during the QE era. And it didn't work and they had to pull back and they had to crush it back to zero. So we went right back down to zero. So that's why the market didn't panic if you looked at that short period, the next three months, the market did start to go down. So we're in a different world today. Said so if you had this type of data for the 40s, which I don't think we do, maybe we do, maybe we could find it. Um, actually, we could, right? Uh, I think it would look very, very different. And I think the real problem is we've never had the combination that we have now, which is super low interest rates and super high valuations, like valuations that make no sense. Mm. You know, Peloton, Snapchat, all, I mean, lots of great examples of this. And look how much Peloton is down in the last nine months. <laughs> yeah. I mean, 80, 85, 90%. Why? Because it got to a valuation that made no sense. They sell bicycles that people buy and then stop using. And then they sell them to play it against sports and they cancel their subscription. That's everybody this month, January, makes a New Year's resolution. I'm going to get fit and I'm going to ride my bike and I'm going to go to the gym and gym membership soar and, and Peloton sales go. And then they don't do it because human beings are in, I don't know, they just don't really follow through on the New Year's resolutions. And so you can go through company after company after company and people have heard me talk, you know, my son works at Snowflake and you know, like when I say, you know, their company is the most highly valued company in the world, right? It's tells you like 140 times sales. It's a great company. It's a fantastic company. It's a change the world company, but it ain't worth 140 times sales. It's just not because you can't make the math work, right? At 10 times sales, you can't make the math work. So at 20 and 30 and 50, look at Zoom stock in the past you know, year because it got to 120 times revenues. Those are stupid numbers. But AMC, GameStop, all of this stuff, Shiba Coin, Do Dogecoin, all of it, it's garbage. But people can right, make things go up just by being in relatively illiquid assets and all buying at the same time. They can make things go up. But at the end of the day, in theory, you own with the stocks, you own the share of a company that's supposed to generate revenue and generate earnings. Look at some of these companies. You know, I was looking at one the other yesterday, right? Never make money. There's no chance they're going to make money. Mm. Their revenues are growing like this. But the more revenue they have, the more they lose because the customer acquisition costs are so high. 
And so this whole game of, oh, I'm just going to create this big thing and then I'm going to do what Facebook did. Facebook was unique. Yeah, they were. They could give away a product and people would post content on it. This is crazy, right? We all became creators for Zuck. And then he could sell that data to advertisers. Well, not everyone can do that. So will there be other businesses that figure out how to get a big audience and then, and then monetize? Sure. But there's going to be small number and the rest, I think, go down a lot. So I, I think this is a great chart, except for being a chart crime, mm. that it doesn't go back far enough. And it only looks at a bull market period. Yeah. You know, Mark, that's a, re that's a really, really good point. I would actually, I would love to see what this looks like going back uh, into the seventies and maybe that trend would actually be pretty different. Uh, really good observation. I, I want to close it out here. Uh, so this chart comes to us from Fundstrat. So what we're looking at is realized real rates versus stock market performance. This comes to us from Fundstrat. Tom Lee over there is great. I will say I actually saw this because Dan Tapiero tweeted this out, our mutual friend, Dan. Dan is a guy who I, I mean, first of all, unbelievable pedigree when it comes to investment, the guys he's worked with. But in general, I think he's really, really good at big directional shifts in macro. He was one of the only guys that I saw publicly tweet in you know peak fear of March of 2020, April 2020. Look at this M2 number. This is the time to go all in. And this is when Bill Ackman was going on TV and saying, uh, you know, hell is yep. coming. You know, people were, you know, th there were other... I don't want to call it any names, but people were saying, go into all cash, short the market. It's going down another 60% from here. And Dan Tapio was screaming from the rooftops, this is extremely bullish. And, you know, he's got this tweet you can go see on his profile. It's like, you know, Dan came out and said, this is the most bullish backdrop for assets that we've seen in 75 years. <laughs> so I just, I'm, I'm drawing connections in my head because I, I trust that guy a lot. You know, when you've got a whole bunch of people the, the connection that I'm hoping listeners get, and just keep in mind, this is just an opinion, but I think there's we're in a market environment right now where there's a lot of fear. I think the consensus opinion is fear. But I, I hope what, what people took away from this was that there's at least enough reason to expect that that fear might not be entirely justified. And I think when you overall look at the macro picture, the most important thing to, stand, uh, to understand is that I think the Fed still is in the box that we all thought they were in three months ago before inflation came back. I think we still are in a scenario where we're in a, structure, a structurally deflationary environment. We've got 130% debt to GDP in the US. We've got a de deceleration in the population growth in general. Um, and I, I just don't see a way that they can normalize rates, but they still need asset prices to remain elevated because of the wealth effect. So I just, it's yeah, hard yeah, for no. me to in, envision an environment where there aren't deeply negative real rates. And I feel like that is bullish for asset prices. Yeah, yeah no, and I, I, I love it. So I'm actually interviewing Dan this afternoon oh, great. for Real Visionaries. And uh, Dan and I have been buddies for a long time and and uh, I had this great thing. So I, I get to interview people I, I think are awesome mm -hmm. for, for this show, Real Visionaries. And uh, so I got to do Kate Long and, and I did Brian Estes. Mm. That one was awesome. Love Brian. The, Love Brian. Oh, I mean, Brian is so awesome. Yeah. I mean, just such a good person, such an amazing story, overcoming adversity, building this amazing bit. Just awesome. Um, and so I'm going to have fun with Dan this afternoon. But you know, Dan is brilliant and, and has done incredibly well. And, and, and you know, the reason us old macro guys, because that's what we are, we're old macro guys, the only thing is, my name's not Dan. So you got Dan Moorhead, you got Dan Pant, uh, uh, Dan Tapiero, um, and you know, maybe I need to change my name to Dan. Um, so in fact, I did the BlockWorks panel at, at the conference with the other Dan. Yeah. And, uh, that was an all-time so panel, all-time. Yeah, I'll, I'll call myself Dan 3. And, um, but you know, Dan is right with a caveat. Remember, these are all nominal. What we're doing is we're not making the companies better. We're not making, the policies are actually doing the opposite. It's making it harder for companies to, to make money and it's making it harder for our companies to sell and, and get, get stuff through the supply chain. What we're doing is we're devaluing the stocks by destroying the currency that they're denominated in. Remember, if you price the S&P in dollars, it looks like it's making new all-time highs. If you price it in gold, it is dead flat since 1996. And that is the difference. And if you price it in Bitcoin, it's ugly. So 
Anyway, I, I do agree that nominally the Fed, the Treasury, the government has no way out but to continue to inflate by devaluation of the currency, houses and stocks. So if you want to own those two things, you, you have a tailwind. But I would rather own things like Bitcoin and other things that will do even better. Right? As great as the stock market did last year. And it did great. Bitcoin did twice mm -hmm. as well. Right? Yeah, I'm with you on that. I, I think in general, like, it, it's important to remember that, that markets respond to expectations. Uh, and markets are forward-looking. And I, I think there's at least a very good chance that, you know, Pippa Malgram does a great job of talking about inflation expectations. And I, I think people just need to be aware that as it feels like a scenario where we are at peak worrying about inflation. Let's put it like that. I think there are real yep. gurglings under the hood that suggest that inflation, actual inflation pressures in the real economy are going to dissipate. And then I think you need to ask yourself as a market participant, how are people going to extrapolate that trend? How is that going to change the psychology of the market? So I think that's the point. My, my personal thought is I, I do think we're entering an environment of secular inflation. I'm, I'm not, I, I don't have strong opinions on the acceleration or de how quickly inflation is going to accelerate. I don't know how it's going to look over the next 10 or so years, but I think, I don't think the big macro picture has changed. I think we're headed towards an environment of deeply negative real rates. And I don't think people should be psyching themselves out trying to tr trade the market uh, and, 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 you know, base asset allocation activities based on Fed tightening because historically, <laughs> I just wouldn't do it. I don't think it's a good investment strategy. No, no, it, it's, it's, it's a great analysis. And, and look, the, the only way you make money in the markets is to have an opinion that's different from the masses and you're right. Mm -hmm. right? That, the key part, the hard part is the second part, right? Being right. Um, coming up with a differentiated opinion is hard and most people don't like to do it because there's comfort in the middle of the herd. But then that being right part is, is hard too. Um, my issue here is I can paint a very interesting scenario for why uh, some of these pressures will not abate and that you know, governments will continue to do stupid stuff which exacerbate the problem and, and keep pressure on goods and services inflation. Um, but the, the challenge I, I have is, you know, demographically, we are headed for an environment where uh, GDP growth is going to be sub 2% mm -hmm. within the next 18 months. It's just, it just is in the U.S. And uh, that's going to put significant pressure on earnings. Earnings are going to be lower, uh, earnings growth. Um, and at some point, investors are going to wake up. I, I keep thinking they're going to and they don't are going to wake up to the nonsense of if your total income is unchanged over the last five years, but your earnings per share went up because you bought back stock, that somehow that's good. That's just financial engineering. You're not a growth company. You shouldn't pay 30 times earnings for Apple if Apple's not growing because their net income's the same. Mm -hmm. right? I mean, their, their earnings per share went up and they paid more dividends to Warren Buffett. Right? Great. But, and he levered up in a tax deferred strategy and again, he's a genius. Um, for that structure, but uh, when the air starts to come out of the balloon because of that fear that you mentioned, Michael, that's when things can get ugly. And if you look, right, other than the Fangman stocks, the average stock last year was down. The other 493 names in the S&P were actually negative because mm. those seven were more than 100% of the gain. And you can look in NASDAQ, I think, what, 43% of NASDAQ stocks are down more than, I think it was 40%. I mean, I, I, I'll find that stat, but I mean, it's a crazy number. And a whole bunch are down 50, 60, 70, 80%. Mm -hmm. And you know that's gonna decimate a whole bunch of people. And remember, the person who got $1,200 check from the government, speculated in GameStop and, and AMC and, and a little Doge and Shiba, and thought they were rich, quit their job, and now is seeing those things go down 50, 60, 70, 80%, what are they gonna do? Well, they're gonna spend less, they're gonna retrench, they might even have to go get a job. I think that ends really badly.
I'm with you on that. I completely agree with you. Now, um, so uh, I I know we're drawing to the close here. Uh, Guys, again, uh, if you made it this far, thank you. Please give Mark and I feedback here. Uh, You can tell I didn't get to any of our stories this week, Uh, but uh, I didn't get to (laughs) to the one story. We had this idea of being, you know, focused on one theme and we we spent the whole time time talking about it. But I I, I really do like the idea of like a concentrated theme around our charts. Mark, I thought you did, when we were talking yesterday, you did such a great job of summing up the point of the show, which is talk about issues that are on the margin, not getting the amount of attention that are that is getting paid from other media outlets um, and to present an alternative point of view I would say so please don't take anything that you listen to in this show ever uh, as investment advice this is just uh, framing ideas in a different way than you might get from your other media diet please 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 give us feedback though whether or not you enjoyed this kind of new format um, and also just uh, rate and subscribe here because I'll be honest, I'm in competition with my co-founder, Jason Yanowitz, uh, and he's creeping up on me in terms of uh, a podcast. I, we need to nip that in the we bud. Do. Everybody's we like, do. oh, Santiago, he's so handsome. I'm like, yeah, fine. But we are better. I mean, we clearly, on the margin, clearly is where all the excess returns happen. On the I'm completely with you, Mark. I, and, and I know the audience agrees with us here, too. We just need to spread the good word. You know what I mean? Um, spread the good word. Yeah, exactly. Um, so thanks, guys, for listening. Mark, this is a ton of fun, as always. And I will see you next week. Cheers. Cheers.